0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark Liberty, and joining me today is...
1: Corey Rusty Memory Knockrunner. By the way, that probably doesn't make sense, but later on when you listen and wonder what other weird programming languages I forgot about, Delphi and Go are some of the other uncommon languages similar to Rust. That'll make sense a little later.
0: Rusty Memory... And, I mean, that's a double one because Rust is actually a memory-protected version of C++. Anyway, we'll continue <laughs> on. On today's episode, we will be discussing the 15 most exploited vulnerabilities of 2021, courtesy of CISA, dive into exactly what we mean with Rust and why it's important, and then end with uh, the latest in a series of attacks against cryptocurrency and crypto-adjacent things. Expect a little ranty. A lot of ranting. With that, let's go ahead and shimmy on in. I
1: thought you were going to say do a transaction on the blockchain on it. I would never. <laughs> As a proud owner of a couple crypto kitties, actually.
0: So in February of this year, the Center for Infrastructure Security Agency, so secure they say it twice. No, Center for Infrastructure and Cybersecurity. No, it is security. Center Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency. (laughs) Which one is it? Okay, it is that one. Yes. Uh, Launched the Known Exploited Vulnerabilities Catalog, where they keep a list of what they see being actively exploited in the wild. When they launched this, I think it was, what, like a few dozen or so flaws that were in there? Like, it felt like 30 or 40 or so. Basically, like... Its intended goal was to bring to light, A, the flaws that are out there, but it also actually assigns an SLA for when like government organizations and even contractors need to resolve and address these vulnerabilities by two if they are potentially impacted. Um, Since just February, so what, March, April, two and a half months or so, that catalog now has 658 vulnerabilities listed in it. And everything ranging from like web browser flaws to network security appliances to uh, different apps that connect both to a network and just standalone on a host. Like it's got flaws like pseudo privilege el- uh, escalations in Linux. It's got a huge swath of basically everything that CISA has seen actively exploited uh, by threat actors around the world.
1: And, and by the way, we should be fair, the, it includes the Five Eyes, even in the original, or actually I can't remember if it was in the original release, but maybe that is the difference. Maybe the growth is that this routinely exploited or these top uh, vulnerabilities in the wild thing has grown to include national security agencies from five partnership countries around the world. So it sounds like a uh, Others are helping CISA keep track of known things in the wild. All in all,
0: like great stuff, like any visibility into this, any additional publications that help show what actually we need to care about and focus on is massively beneficial, even beyond just critical infrastructure, which is CISA's core mission for protecting to really any organization out there can make use of this catalog to identify systems that they have installed and what their risk profile is for actually potentially having something exploited on them.
1: And we, we, we noted before, part of the benefit of this is, you know, you are, I think a lot of folks relate to being behind on patches because it's an endless monthly game. And it's always a matter of prioritizing what's important. And sure, patches do have criticality, but this extra variant or this extra parameter of knowing it's in the wild and it's seen widely by others, it just is an extra parameter that helps you prioritize. So when time is difficult to get and you have lots of things to patch, like Mark said, this is a global benefit to anyone in security in any you know organization. You know, if they can't hit all of the patches right away, uh, at least pay attention to the most critical ones. And more importantly, the critical ones that are known to be exploited in the wild are the biggest for sure.
0: Yep. And last week, uh, CISA, the NSA, the FBI, and those other Five Eyes organizations that you mentioned, Corey, uh, published Alert AA22117A, or as it's better known as, the 2021 Top Routinely Exploited Vulnerabilities List, which is sounds like the most depressing award show <laughs> Yeah,
1: Yeah, a pretty depressing award show, but easier to remember than A22117A. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, but, anyways, as you might suspect from the title, this list is the 15 and actually some change most widely exploited flaws that they saw over the course of 2021. And it's almost exclusively like internet facing or internet accessible systems. There is one Microsoft like local privilege escalation thrown in there as well. Um, I guess it is a, a network privilege escalation. So we'll get to that in a second. But basically, CISA noted that for the most of the top exploited vulnerabilities, researchers or other actors released proof of concept code within two weeks of the vulnerabilities disclosure, likely facilitating exploitation by a larger range of malicious actors. So I wanted to take the first bit of this podcast and just go through that list of the top 15 most widely exploited flaws. Some of them are actually pretty recent and probably have a decent amount of familiarity with them. Many of them we've talked about at various points on this podcast, but there's a few others thrown in there that are probably worth bringing to attention. Um, so. With that, let's start with the first one on their list, and that one is actually really interesting to see show up on the 2021 top routinely exploited vulnerabilities because it was first disclosed in December of that year. Basically, it only existed for a single month out of the year and it still made it on the list. And that one was the log 4 shell vulnerability. So we chatted about this at least twice on the podcast and in one of our security reports. Uh, But for those that don't have familiarity with log 4 shell, basically it's a vulnerability in Apache's log 4 J2, which is an open source logging framework for really any Java based application out there uh, that wants some form of logging in it, which tends to be all of them. Now, the reason that I think it showed up in this list, despite only existing for a month in the year of 2021, was because the barrier for exploit to it was extremely low. Basically, as long as you could trick a vulnerable application into logging something under your control, a string, a parameter, anything, you could exploit that vulnerable application. And we noted when this was first disclosed that it was within like 24 hours that we started seeing our honey net light up with people trying to exploit this vulnerability by injecting the the exploit string into like user agent headers or request paths to web resources And it really, it was not long until, like, we started seeing some weaponized uses of this, too. I think it was, what, a month ago, Corey, where we talked about the one of the Iranian nation-state-backed APTs using this in some of their threat actor activity. And clearly, like, the bulk of the industry has seen a lot of these styles of attacks because it's so dang easy to exploit. I mean, crap, there were people on Twitter, I'm sure the bulk of them were jokes and not real, but like changing your your apple id username to match the exploit string just to screw with apple's databases and logging like it's it's kind of insane like how this like vulnerability in a logging library could have such substantial impacts across the industry
1: and it totally makes sense that it showed up in and this and like you said it was it's easy to it's url based if you actually read our internet security report where mark actually details it you don't actually have to be a web coder to kind of get it. It's it's all in a URL and sure it, Mark explains it very easily. So it's it's, it's just the type, the style of vulnerability that's so trivial to exploit when it is exposed that as Mark said it's it's out there widely.
0: So for time's sake let's jump into the second one on the list and this was CVE-2021 4539, which was a vulnerability in Manage Engine's AD Self Service Plus toolkit um, that could enable remote code execution. So, AD Self Service Plus is almost exactly as it sounds, what it is. It's like a password management and single sign on solution for the company called Manage Engine. And in September of 2021, they disclosed a unauthenticated by or an authentication bypass and remote code execution vulnerability in that program's API, basically. Um, so you can interact with AD Self Service Plus through their API or through the web portal. And the API um, authenticates and authorizes URLs based off of like a specific security filter in there. Um, so it looks for like, authentication material, make sure the URL checks out. But it turns out that they had a flaw in how they normalized these URLs before validation which basically gave attackers access to the entirety of the REST API. Um, in their disclosure they put out in September of that year, they showed like exactly how it's bypassed. It's pretty trivial, like similar to like a tr- uh, directory traversal style flaw, where you just do a dot, dot, slash in front of the endpoint, and it apparently causes it to hiccup as it's trying to validate the URL. But long story short, attackers could use this, aver- this access and then leverage an arbitrary file write and a command injection flaw to drop web shells on any vulnerable system. And to ManageEngine's credit, back in September of that year, they put out a very thorough KB on both how to detect and how to mitigate the flaw um, if you were one of their users at the time. So this isn't one that we've talked about on on the podcast previously. But it was a serious enough one that it showed up in that list of the top 15 most widely exploited vulnerabilities from 2021, even though it was only there for about half the year. Um, interesting. And it makes sense. Like this style of application is something that APTs go after. Like it is, it's a part of your authentication framework if you use it. And so being able to drop a web shell on it and steal potentially logs or user information out of it to abuse it to bypass authentication to systems, totally makes sense why that would be a prime target for threat actors out there. Uh, The next flaw, or I guess set of flaws that showed up on the list, were the suite of vulnerabilities behind our favorite Microsoft Exchange server vulnerabilities, proxy logon and proxy shell. So it's been a while since we talked about these. Quick refresher, uh, proxy logon was this original set of vulnerabilities. I think it was four individual ones that Microsoft patched and disclosed in March 2021 with a emergency out-of-cycle Exchange Server patch after they detected Hafnium, which is one of the Chinese state-sponsored threat actors, actively exploiting it in the wild. And basically, within 24 hours of this patch, there were proof of concept code everywhere. I think Microsoft was even trying to stem the tide by yanking some of them off of GitHub at the time which triggered some negative reactions from researchers. But it basically boiled down to, like most experts agreed, if you had not patched this within 48 hours, it was basically too late for your servers because it was another trivially easy to exploit series of flaws that enabled threat actors to drop web shells onto systems. Um, It was the four vulnerabilities at a high level, basically an authentication bypass, which gave you access to server-side request forgeries to basically do whatever you wanted arbitrary file write flaws to let you drop files places, and then a command execution one to enable those web shells. And at the end, basically, proxy logon gave full remote code execution on those targeted systems. This is the one where the FBI, if you remember, responded to it by connecting through some of these web shells to remove the web shells back then. Like extremely serious flaw um, that got a lot of attention, but still Unfortunately, there's organizations Didn't out they, there. That,
1: besides removing their web shell, they also kind of forcefully patch patched systems.
0: Yep. You know. So lots of drama around that one. Proxy shell was kind of the next evolution that was actually disclosed in a black hat presentation by Orange Psy, which if you follow Black Hat or DEF CON over the last 10 years, you know, he has discovered so many dang extremely impressive vulnerabilities over the years. Um, his talk was called Proxy Logon is Just the Tip of the Iceberg. I'm sure you can find it on YouTube because uh, I believe you presented it at DEF CON right after 2, which would mean it's free. Um, but basically, this was just another chain of vulnerabilities giving that pre-authentication remote code execution as well as another post-authentication remote code execution on vulnerable systems. Uh, for that one, the patch was available in July. His talk wasn't until August at DEF CON and Black Hat. But similar result. Attackers have been using this to dump web shells and even deploy ransomware on vulnerable networks, too. So proxy logon and proxy shell were two huge ones last year, and it totally makes sense to see those on the list because there are still a huge number of organizations out there that have on premises Microsoft Exchange, either in tandem with or instead of uh, cloud based Office 365 email, for example. And by nature, these servers have to be exposed to the Internet in order for them to work. Like That's how you get Outlook web access on them. And so any vulnerability in their portal is potentially serious. Uh, what was our um, mitigation advice back then? It's basically like, yes, you have to expose it, but you know, put it behind a proxy where you can at least monitor the connections going to it, where you can potentially do anti-malware scanning on any files that get downloaded to it. Like You don't have to just expose it straight to the internet. There's still a lot you can do to protect systems like this that are supposed to be internet accessible systems.
1: Yeah, I think you nailed it.
0: Uh, the next flaw on the list was CVE 2021-26084, which was a vulnerability in Atlassian's Confluence server, uh, yet another remote code execution. So for those that don't work in software development, Atlassian's JIRA and Confluence projects are extremely popular development project management tools. Uh, Confluence being the like documentation server uh, that goes along with Jira's ticket management, and a lot of organizations expose Confluence to the internet to enable remote workers to connect to it. It's designed to be securely cloud-hosted as well, but in July of 2021, Atlassian disclosed and patched a unauthenticated remote code execution vulnerability, which they noted at the time was being actively exploited in the wild. Uh, this flaw. Uh, abused what's called OGNL, or Object Graph Navigation Language, uh, which was a new one for me. I feel like I, these days, have learned every single type of XML or structured querying language, but OGNL was not one I was familiar with, mostly because I don't have a lot of experience with Java, personally. But uh, the attack was an OGNL injection due to basically not validating the input. So long story short, OGNL, like XML or other, like uh, YML or YAML, YAML, are basically languages for like getting and setting properties in a program, in this case, Java. Um, in the case of Confluence, it uses this to build web pages or uh, web pages from templates and values passed with OGNL. And the vulnerability. Uh, was that it was exploiting some validation that basically allowed the attacker to escape whatever parameter they were passing, which could be like a string or a method call or an indice, and instead evaluate whatever the heck they wanted on there. So additional Java classes, additional commands, basically enabling that full remote code execution, which in theory could give them access to anything on that server, which if you're a software developer, Confluence tends to be where you keep a lot of your sensitive trade secrets or design plans for projects you're working on. So, another one where, at the face of it, makes sense why people would go after this
1: vulnerability. For sure. And by the way, the explain this like I'm five description is it doesn't matter what scripting language or coding language you're talking about. You know, whenever you're scripting or coding, You offer ability to do user input at the end of the day, whether it's OGNL, uh, whether it's C++, or whether it's, I don't know, what's your favorite mark, Python. Uh, We'll talk about a new language later that malware is using. You take user input and you have to sanitize that user input because user input is untrusted. You know, a user can be a hacker. A user can be a, a malicious insider. It all just comes down to whatever scripting and coding language you use, you have to pay attention to. I want to ask a user something, but I want to make sure the user is very limited and only be able to share the answer to exactly what I'm looking for. And then, so the, without going into detail, half of these flaws are insufficient validation of input. And then in a lot of these, it's string values that ultimately
0: get processed in a different way, but some of them, like this OGNL one, it's literally the user can be supplying commands to be executed on the server, which makes it even more dangerous if you've got... Oh, that, that, that's the problem
1: with strings, is strings can have characters, but many different languages have re- reserved characters that that stand for something. And you—you you know, even though the user might pretend to be using it as part of a string of a response, they might know that it's a reserve character. So being able to escape when you hear escape validation, that's if, if someone's giving you a string response and it has characters that your program, your language interprets a certain way, you need to have a way to escape that and, and, and find a different way to uh, like maybe you do have to include that character somehow in the user response in case it is legit, but make sure your, your coding language doesn't interpret it as something that's supposed to do something based on. Yep. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Uh, so the next vulnerability in the list was actually from August of twenty twenty. So one of the older ones and these most widely
1: exploited ones.
0: And it was a privilege. Can I just as-
1: say Can I I say shell and login seem to be popular in all the fun names in this. They either have shell or login, and some of them have versions of both.
0: (laughs) Yes. As Corey's hinting at, this flaw was called zero logon, uh, which was a privilege escalation vulnerability in Microsoft's net logon process that could allow an attacker to impersonate any computer, including the root domain controller on a network. This is one where it's one of those relatively rare CVSS 10 out of 10 scores due to ease of exploitation and the damages it could potentially cause. And it basically boiled down to a cryptographic flaw in Microsoft's NetLogon Remote Protocol, or MSNRPC, that uh, targets any server that uses NT Land Manager or NTLM to authenticate within a domain. So the flaw is derived from an initialization, blah, 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 initialization vector in the login process being set to all zeros all the time so high level in cryptography a lot of the a lot of cryptography's strength is built off of random number generation where you have a random key the cryptographic like blockchaining or the cipher is initialized with a random value as well um, and all of this put together is how you get that strong encryption uh, which can also be used for then authentication with things like cryptographic signing In the case of this vulnerability, with the initialization vector set to all zeros, it basically meant that one in every 256 keys will create a ciphertext that also has all zeros, which meant an attacker um, could basically just spoof a authentication credential being sent to a domain controller, uh, attempted 256 or so times with a all zero initialization, initialization vector, and one of those session keys will eventually decrypt it to all zeros and basically allow that machine to log in. And this gets around a lot of the account lockout protections where like, if you tried this with the user account, it probably would get locked out after three. But with machine accounts, they don't tend to have those automatic lockout restrictions. After successfully authenticating with this, an attacker could then disable encryption and authenticated signing on these messages. and. MSNRPC, which could then let them intercept traffic and steal passwords or just straight up change passwords within these connections. They could also just change the password of different accounts on the system, like the domain controller itself. It was a pretty serious flaw, so you see why it's a 10 out of 10. And this is one of the ones where, I mean, all things considered, this should not be exposed to the internet. This is definitely a already on the network and elevate your level of access style of flaw but still an extremely easy one to exploit caused by just a mistake in cryptography not necessarily a code I guess it is technically a code bug but it's not like the the traditional style of code bug you know or you're exploiting a buffer overflow or invalid input sanitization it's literally just all zeros for an IV that's bad news bears um next flaw CVE 2021 21972 was a remote code execution vulnerability in VMware's vSphere server. So there's a vulnerability in the vCenter server, basically the the management software for a VMware hypervisor, uh, where an unauthenticated user can upload arbitrary files, which attackers could then use to drop web shells on the system, which it executes with system level permissions. Uh, As you might guess, A hypervisor, something responsible for virtualizing machines, tends to need elevated levels of access on the underlying system. And so if you can trick it into popping up a web shell, you get that system level access. One of the reasons this was such a serious issue is people do sometimes expose vCenter server to the internet. Like it is designed to be a web portal to connect into these. I'd argue it is absolutely designed to be on a local network only and protected through like a proxy or a VPN to get to it, if you have to get to it from the internet. But by exposing it to the internet, you give people potentially remote code execution on your hypervisor on
1: your network. Yeah, even if the portal has its own authentication, you're exposing any potential vulnerabilities. So like Mark said, if it's a... I I think, again, we, we use the the NORAD example of, you don't just put the door to your main super secure center on a public street. You hide it behind fences and gates and uh, you know military personnel monitoring people coming in. So yeah, there's a lot of web interfaces that, I mean, part of the why the web interface is to give easy online access to it. But think about that. If, if the, the, the interface you use to get to all the virtual servers that you're managing is probably pretty critical. Don't just put it on the public internet put a vpn there at the very freaking least use a low you know a very limited access control list if you want to give direct port access and whether it's direct port access with a very limited control list if it doesn't support mfa i wouldn't i would always prefer a vpn personally i know there's different use cases but at the very least make sure you have mfa because there's no web portal in the world that probably is entirely vulnerability-free. You know, maybe some haven't been found yet. It's it's best to protect the private ones that aren't meant for everybody to log into. Absolutely.
0: Um, next vulnerability on the list, CVE 2020-06888, was another Exchange Server remote code execution flaw. This one from February of 2020. Uh, in the Exchange Server Control Panel. This one actually didn't get a fancy name then. I don't know why, because I feel like it's in the era of fancy names. Uh, surprised it didn't get something like a control proxy or control logon. I don't know. Uh, this one was caused by, again, a cryptographic issue where basically there were static keys for how some of the code signing worked uh, or message signing worked. Which basically could allow any authenticated user to execute arbitrary code at system level permissions by just forging requests, basically. This one did at least require authentication, but I mean these days it's so easy to fish credentials out of people that even you know getting low-level user account access and then abusing something like this to elevate your access to full code execution of system is a relatively low lift once you've gained those initial credentials. Um Two left. The next one's an even older goodie, is CVE-2019-11510, which was the Pulse Secure Pulse Connect arbitrary file read flaw. This was another CVSS 10 out of 10 due to how uh, easy it was to exploit and the potential damages. And we've talked about this recently because this is one of the flaws that a lot of threat actors have uh, exploited on vulnerable systems to basically steal VPN credentials and then sell them or post them on underground forums which in turn, folks have used those VPN credentials to then authenticate into a network and potentially launch ransomware or other attacks against them. Uh, The final vulnerability in the list was CVE 2018-13379, which was a similar vulnerability in Fortinet's uh, Forta OS uh, platform, which again, attackers used to steal arbitrary files off there, like VPN credentials, to then turn around and authenticate into networks. So Man, 15 vulnerabilities. They also included about a dozen more vulnerabilities they found routinely exploited in 2021 that didn't quite make the list. There were similar you know, issues in VPN providers, VPN software, privilege escalation flaws, and remote code execution on popular business systems. So hopefully all of you have patched anything we've talked about here by now. It's You've had months to years to do it. But even then... I like these styles of reports where you can see exactly what attackers are abusing out there. You can see some pretty common patterns in here, going after authentication platforms or VPN platforms and code execution on systems that are potentially exposed to the Internet. All kind of rounded up with this Windows easy to exploit privilege escalation on local networks, too. So that's I'd be willing to bet that we'll be seeing quite a few of these probably in the 2022 list. Of most commonly exploited vulnerabilities too. What are your thoughts, Corey?
1: Yeah, I, I was going to st- this. I was going to do a prediction, and it goes with my joke about uh, exploit shell, exploit login. Uh, I I don't know if they're planning on releasing this every year, or maybe we'll do multiple year updates. But uh, if there's one thing that's not on the list that I expect to see, it might be Spring for shell vulnerabilities. If you haven't paid attention to Spring for shell, kind of shares a log for shell like marketing name, totally different is, so, you know, Spring Framework is a Java framework similar to Log4Shell, but for different things. So uh, there, if you haven't heard of spring for shell go Google it. It's a more recent set of issues. And it again, because it's a framework that's commonly used, it's an issue that can affect a lot of devices, the framework itself. But, you know, I, I know offhand just from Cisco's advisories this week that uh, they use spring for shell Well, we're talking about patching really quickly, just, uh, you know, we're not going to talk about it, but do know today kind of, or the last three days have been Cisco patch day from the 26th to the 28th. They've released a lot of high and critical issues. So if you're a Cisco user, be sure to Google that after you check if you have these 15 most exploited vulnerabilities patched or not.
0: And again, this is all to help you prioritize what to tackle. Like hopefully by now you've tackled all of these, but knowing what people are actually exploiting can help you narrow down that list of thousands of vulnerabilities you need to address into a few dozen or a few hundred. Um, So moving on now, uh, the FBI also issued its own alert last week, stating that at least 60 entities worldwide had fallen victim to one of the newest ransomware as a service variants called Black Hat. uh, Since it Black Cat, not Black Hat, by the way, uh, since it emerged in November of this last year. It uh, goes by a few other names like Alf V or Noberis. Um, and its kind of claim to fame was that it's actually the first ever prominent ransomware written in the Rust programming language. So do you think, Corey, pausing for a second here, this is like a you know Eastern European kids research project, similar to like sometimes I write something in a completely different programming language just to learn it. Maybe they thought, you know what, I'm going to write ransomware in Rust and see how that works.
1: Or do you no, think they were Rust. really
0: trying to benefit from like its memory protections and Rust to avoid code
1: execution in their own ish
0: their ransomware?
1: I mean the FBI advisory or C- I mean it's kind of they, they kind of hint to why they might use Rust. Uh, what was why can't I think of the other weird programming framework that's now old? there's a lot of anti-malware you know compilers and programming frameworks leave artifacts. And there is one in particular that was popularly used among malicious actors, too. So there's plenty of AV that use things like what coding framework it was built in as part of an indicator of if it's good or not. Uh, By the way, you can't use that alone because obviously everybody uses Rust in these other frameworks. But long story short, my understanding is really Rust is one of those frameworks that doesn't show up in the good guys' view right now for frameworks that has any sort of weighting to good or bad. So it could be as simple as it's new enough that security programs looking for indicators uh, may just not pay attention to Rust, which is a good thing for the bad guys. I mean, you're right that maybe Rust has cool security features that the bad guys like too, but it could just be its newness adds a little bit of security by obscurity for the bad
0: guys. I think that's entirely more likely. Um, In their advisory, they gave some additional details about the incident. So it leverages previously compromised user credentials to gain access to victim networks. Once on the systems, it compromises AD admin accounts using Mimikatz. It uses Task Scheduler to configure malicious group policy objects to deploy the actual ransomware, leverages PowerShell scripts and Cobalt Strike as part of its exploit chain, disables security features on victim networks. Uh, leverages Windows Admin tools during compromise, so lots of living off the land activity. And it also is one of those double extortion variants that will steal victim data prior to executing the ransomware and even steal it from some popular cloud providers as well. Um, so the FBI specifically in their advisory requested any logs or IP addresses or Bitcoin or Monero addresses and even communications with the attackers. So if you did happen to become a victim of the black cat ransomware, make sure you assist with that to try and track down the criminals. Um, But in terms of tips, like it's the same stuff that we tend to say for all
1: ransomware. I mean, really, ransomware requires you to protect your network from compromise via every vector. Malware can be installed via email. It can be installed through a, a vulnerable program that you have exposed to the internet It can be exposed because of user error it can it can be exposed in many different ways so like you said lots of different tips the generic one though is malware detection is good but malware authors are trying to evade old school techniques so we keep on reminding make sure your anti-malware is more than just signature based it has to have more proactive techniques anything from You know, machine learning at a high level, sand uh, at a network level, machine learning from a process level for EDR software that does you know process heuristics, Uh, sandboxing that uses behavioral analysis. Just make sure your anti-malware is pretty good at catching new things, not just. And
0: other practical tips. There's another one that they gave that we don't tend to give a lot, but is absolutely necessary and that's reviewing your domain for new or unrecognized users so not even just in this threat actor it's pretty common for threat actors in general to once they've gained access to like a domain admin account use that to create other accounts for their actual activity because maybe you are monitoring your domain administrator specifically but if you aren't monitoring for new ones popping up you might miss some of this activity then so if you've got a sim or some other tools for monitoring that just periodically audit to look for new accounts you don't expect use that as an opportunity to uh, audit permissions as well and maybe clean some of those up and then obviously the obvious ones of a good bcdr plan and then like Corey said, deploying those actual proactive
1: anti-malware engines instead of the ones that are just signature-based. Totally excited, but maybe this will help with protection. I, I, I don't want to, it ends up being a competitor product, so I don't want to talk about it, but one of the articles shared a anecdotal uh, way one of these people got infected by the Black Hat ransomware, and if I remember right, there is a VPN appliance that got hijacked And that gave them enough privilege to get internal access that allowed them to access, by the way, a VMware server. Remember that uh, in the top 15, it wasn't publicly exposed, which was a good thing. That guy probably wouldn't be uh, affected by uh, internet-based. But but once they had that internal private access, they can then add the malware to internal VMware servers. So just shows you all the different sophisticated ways bad guys can get into plant things like black cat ransomware.
0: And again, this is a ransomware as a service variant too. So you don't even need to be a skilled developer to use it. Like yeah, you need to know how to fish people potentially, but basically they take care of everything from making the ransomware, making it evasive, typically the payment mechanisms too, even customer support for you as the cyber criminal as you're trying to deploy it. Like this commoditization of malware and ransomware has made it easy for really anyone to launch these attacks, which means on our end, on the cyber defense side, we need to make sure as organizations like we're not letting our guard down and that regardless of the size, making sure that you've got the right defenses. So rounding out today, uh, I wanted to end with a story that is just pure Schadenfreude for me, where a phishing attack last week resulted in the theft of ninety one yeah nfts from the board 8 yacht club uh worth and i use the word worth very loosely here 2.8 million dollars uh, so board 8 yacht club it's a collection of 10,000 nfts that are quite literally jpegs and pngs that are freely available for viewing by anyone on the internet which people have paid millions of dollars for the rights to say that they own them with no actual copyright protection by
1: the way i i think you know me and mark kind of think nfts are stupid but i will say these these of the ones that seem to be retaining value as you know value is subjective to what society gives a crap about these are the more popular one like the board ape yacht club is one of the more successful nfts out there at least as far as i understand right it, it and, is you know, literally
0: crypto kitties but with
1: monkeys yes yes <laughs> But people seem to like them. Who's the... It's not the Justin Bieber one that's bears, but isn't it backed by some famous... Anyways, the point is, I don't think they really have value. Obviously, anyone can get the JPEG, so you just have the the right to say you are the one that really owns it. But... uh, Of the NFTs out there, this is one that still seems to retain some value among NFT lovers, whether that remains true or not. So I just think it's interesting because of all the crap NFTs out there, this is the one that seems to be more popular than average.
0: If you would like to own a link to a JPEG of your very own, uh, you can buy them on OpenSea, the largest NFT marketplace right now. There's a few of these apes up for sale for a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of Ethereum.
1: I uh, or if you just want to download the JPEG directly to your computer and not claim ownership, you can still put it on your wall. Yep, exactly.
0: But <laughs> anyways, so uh, last week, uh, an attacker compromised Board Eight Yacht Club's uh, Instagram account and used it to promote uh, what's called an airdrop of NFT tokens. So airdrops in the world of cryptocurrency are basically free distributions of tokens or NFTs, typically to like seed. A marketplace or a uh, an environment with like people that now have ownership of it, um, but uh, threat actors have been increasingly using these uh, fake airdrops uh, in order to trick people into losing a bunch of their stuff. Because basically, how they how it works is they say, "Okay, we're going to give you five free NFTs of XYZ. Uh, just click on this link and then accept it in your wallet." Uh, most people these days use a wallet called MetaMask, which is basically a browser plugin. Uh, where you can sign transactions with it, so transfer cryptocurrency, transfer an NFT, whatever. So if you were to fall for this particular style of fish, you would be tricked into visiting the site, it would say accept your NFT here, you click accept, uh, MetaMask pops up for you to sign the transaction, supposedly accepting the, the NFT. What's really happening behind the scenes, though, is that transaction is instead draining your wallet of all of your NFTs and tokens and sending them to one under the attacker's control. And so in this specific attack during the limited amount of time that that Instagram had the fake post up on it, 91 of these NFTs got stolen. This comes a month after attackers went after the discord server for Bored Ape Yacht Club uh, and stole a few NFTs using that as well. And this is not the first instance of this style of attack occurring, and it seems to be growing in popularity. And so one of the things I wanted to talk about was there's this whole push by crypto enthusiasts and NFT enthusiasts towards what they're calling Web3. If you have been on Twitter or the internet or anything in the last six months, you have not been able to escape people promoting how amazing Web3.0 is gonna be and just totally revolutionizing how we interact with the internet. Uh, They promote it as a way where you basically own everything you create because it's backed up by a token on a blockchain. Uh, But the reality is like a fully decentralized system like that, it has its weaknesses, this being one of them. Like There's clearly some benefit to having some form of centralized oversight, right, Corey, where if someone were to defraud you and steal your stuff, having some central agency to track that down and get it back might be beneficial. If someone defrauds me through my bank account or my steals my credit card, like my credit card company will track down that money and potentially reverse the transaction. Law enforcement can go after them and compel them to send it back like with a fully decentralized system where basically a code bug or you falling for a fish like this and boom, no take sees, no recourse available. That's a pretty substantial hurdle that I feel like needs to be solved in order for
1: like the everyday individual to benefit from a system like absolutely that? absolutely freaking agree by the way i did I always listen to our podcast it's the best yeah really. <laughs> quantifiably the best not even subjectively but there's other good podcasts out there one i like from gimlet media is called reply all not really a computer security podcasts but they do nerdy tech stuff uh they have a recent episode from early this month called the rainbow chain it, it doesn't talk about ape nfts but i think it i forget what Justin Bieber's nft was but it was teddy bears basically copying eight and it talks about what Mark just said exactly a lady who loves Justin Bieber uh when you could buy these nfts they had a lottery effect where there are certain ones that I think had a rainbow something on it were the most rare so she got one that was worth money and uh, she got an email that basically said, hey, we're giving some people some extra free Justin Bieber stuff. Click here and, and, and enter. And when she clicked there, it was phishing her actual login for her wallet. And pow, all of her NFTs were gone. And uh, the podcast talks about, you know, she basically contacted Reply All. And they did investigative reporting trying to find a way, including going to the creators of the NFT to see if you can get it back. And ultimately, the answer is no. <laughs> yeah, It's owned by someone else now. You know, it's up to you to pay attention to security risks and your wallet. And you're just not going to get it back. It, it was stolen. But but unlike money, it's a little different to track. So everything Mark said, it's a very interesting podcast. It talks about, by the way, to me, this is the risk with cryptocurrency as it is today. Because stealing your cryptocurrency wallet is just as easy and there's really no way, you know, it, it's officially gone once you lose that that special code, that that big long string of numbers and letters. Uh, so anyways, uh, interesting podcast, if you're curious on this, that really covers something very similar to what Mark was talking about. It's just, Ed, I don't see something like this taking
0: off without solving some of these major issues. And, and to be clear, and to be honest, there are some things that some uh like blockchain techs or wallet techs are actually doing to address it like there's this concept of multi-signature wallets where you can have a second key to your wallet and like escrow so that when you die your family can still get into it potentially um there's you can use that as a form of um having multiple people have to approve large transactions so like a, prevent potentially fraudulent issues but on the face of it, like it's still like the wild, wild west, and there are people losing hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars by like
1: code bugs with no way of reversing them and no recourse available. Yeah. And and frankly, in my opinion <laughs> Cryptocurrency was made by libertarians that just don't want regulation and oversight from anyone because they don't trust anyone. And there's solutions to all the problems you just talked about, Mark. There are solutions, but all the solutions require a centralization or third party trust. For instance, if you have that second signing key, you have to trust someone besides yourself to help. So I, I did this. to me, it's just a utopian idea that you can have a totally decentralized, currency without realizing that that just makes the wild west by by definition and there's actually benefit to centralization and regulation that can protect people and so
0: i'm going to get on my high horse one last time specifically on the concept of nfts where when you own an nft what it fundamentally is on the on the bottom level is a blockchain entry saying that you are the owner of whatever exists at this specific url now that URL is still reliant on someone's web servers to deliver that million-dollar JPEG that you own. If that web server goes down, yes, you own the URL, but there's nothing there. That like doesn't a exist. great example of this is there was a Formula One racing NFT uh, that, like, uh, last year hopped on the craze. The company that provided those NFTs uh, is like some game went out of business. They shut down the game. So yes, you own it, but do you really? Because they were able to shut it down and now you just own a useless URL. Yeah. It's,
1: it's, oh, and so if you done. cop, if you copied and pasted the, the JPEG so that you still have a copy, that's cool. Yeah. So did everyone else in the world. Correct. <laughs> you, you only own it in name. It's not a thing that you can only get a copy of. Anyone else can get a copy of. in most, so it's, yeah, it's I I don't get it, uh, and and I would say ninety percent of the NFTs coming out are pump and dump schemes intended to take advantage of people that are following a craze they don't understand. Now so. to be
0: clear, like I there are I think legitimate uses of this technology or potentially legitimate. Like one example that, like I heard that actually I feel like there's something there, is with like ticket sales for an example, because one of the benefits of an NFT ecosystem is that. So yes, you can sell it on to someone else. It's like, let's say I bought a ticket to Foo Fighters and I can't go, or I'm just a crappy scalper and I want to make money. I can sell it to someone else. And in the real world, like I could physically hand that ticket over to someone else. I guess they're all digital now, but go with me here. Physically hand it to someone else. I get all the money from that transaction. With an NFT, in theory, you can set up the system where anytime someone resells that, the original artist gets a cut of that sale. Something. Which yeah. I think that there is something there and there's like some benefit out of that. Like I could see that as a legitimate Yeah, for use. sure. But JPEGs on the internet for millions of dollars,
1: uh, come on. Good luck. <laughs> Good Anyways, luck.
0: off my high horse. Uh, if you are a Board 8 Yacht Club owner, feel free to tweet at me and tell me why I'm wrong. XORRO underscore. Yeah. I will gladly have that conversation with you.
1: Love, love what you love as much as we're freaking pooping on it you know, value is subjective to society. And there's a group of people that love Chist and Bieber and love teddy bear pictures. and There's a the people that love bored apes. So, and there's the people that buy for tens of thousands of dollars, real teddy bears that are blinged out. Like, you know, it's the most, to me, they're like pop cap <laughs> figurines, but the most expensive teddy bear version. So if you love it, cool, man. It's It doesn't have to be an investment. It just be, can be something you love and you want to support. That's great. But, but if someone hey,
0: forgets to pay their web hosting bill, you don't lose your physical teddy bear.
1: Yeah. And don't expect it to keep the value. Don't expect everyone to agree the value that you have in your head of it today and that some people might agree with. A year from now, it may be worth pennies on the sense. But hey, if you felt good having it, keep, keep Good on you. But for the love of God, stop preying on vulnerable people with this style of thing. Yes, please.
0: Looking forward to the next $400 million crypto heist next week for something stupid too. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening to our rant. As always, <laughs> if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics, suggestions for future episode topics, or want to tell me why I'm wrong about cryptocurrency and NFTs, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore, Corey is at SECADEPT, and the both of us are at hashtag the443podcast. Thank you again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.